0: Amen. Hey, it's good to see you all in a different room than usual. If this is your first time with us, uh, you should know that we're not normally back here. Normally we're in the bigger room up front. Uh, But our church is partnering with a ministry called Family Promise where we give our sanctuary and our space to... Give a place to stay for local families who are trying to get back on their feet and trying to find uh, affordable housing and things like that. And so uh, several times a year we gladly give our space uh, so that the kingdom of God can be advanced in that way. And so uh, if this is your first time, don't come back here next week. You will not find us. You will find an empty room with the A.C. turned off and frigid cold darkness. <laughs> Never mind. Um, so, so this is not the room to go to. A um, couple announcements. Uh, before we jump into our time together, uh, you many of you helped us last week with the Women's Resource Center in stocking their pantries from Feed the Bay, and we are grateful for that. Uh, those pantries do not stay stocked, and so we have a box that we try to fill each week uh, so that we can continue to give to the Women's Resource Center so that they can... Um, Be able to reach out to not just women, but families in our community who are struggling. And so I would encourage you to touch base with Reagan and Tori, who are both out tonight. So touch base with me if you're looking to bring some sort of donations uh, so that we can keep this ministry of our church stocked. And then last but not least, I know many of you signed up for a basic Christianity class that's still meeting. Well, it started back meeting. We took two weeks off. um, But we are back at it on 4.30 on Sunday afternoons in room 603. Uh, so that is all of, the, all of the, the news and the updates and things. It's all out of the way. And so we are continuing now this series we began last week called Prophet, Priest, and King. We are looking at something called the threefold office of Christ. At least that's what it's called if you were to turn in any systematic theology textbook. And, and I do want to address something that I fear might be a problem uh, if it's not continuously addressed among us. Uh, You see, in our day and age in the church, it seems like there are two warring camps in kind of the greater evangelical culture. There is the the theology nerds and there are the go-do people, right? And so the theology nerds are the ones that wear bow ties and buy fancy pens and uh, they sit around their craft coffee and craft microbrews and uh, they discuss things like divine aseity and peccability versus impeccability and, and things like that that some of you have never even heard of before and you say, what are these things? Uh, and they sit and they debate and they pontificate and they argue and they wrestle around their coffee and their fancy things. And then there are the go doers and the go doers uh, look with scorn on the uh, on the theology nerds, just as the theology nerds look with scorn on the go doers and the go doers are actually outgoing and doing uh, they 're actually out uh, helping with ministries they 're actually out praying for people rather than talking about the theology of prayer, um, but uh, there are plenty of pitfalls that come with that as well, and, and in fact, both sides lob justifiable grenades at one another. The theology nerds would say, hey, you may be going and doing, but you would get burned at the stake at any Christian council for the things that you actually believe because they're heresy, right? And, and the go-doers say, well, you may want to burn me at the stake, but you're so busy talking over coffee, you'll never actually build the stake to burn me. Uh, so ha-ha-ha, right? And it goes back and forth and back and forth. Uh, and there is a temptation among the church to live with this dichotomy. I'm a go-doer, you can be your theology guy, or I'm a theology guy, you can go uh, and do. And there's a, an equal temptation that kind of flows out of that with our conversation around Jesus as prophet, priest, and king for us to think that this is some sort of empty theologizing. We're, we're, we're kind of debating semantics around terms, and we're, we're doing this so that we can be the heady intellectual college ministry, and we're, we're the people who think about the deep stuff, and you can go... And do your doing, uh, but we're going to sit here and wrestle with uh, the big issues. But but here's the reality: is that Christians throughout the ages have recognized that there is not a wedge between going and doing and sitting and thinking. Uh, there is not a division between theology and practice. Uh, they are inextricably united. The the reality is that theology, theologos, the study of God, is not some empty discussion for people who are heady and intellectual and like craft brew. The reality is that we're not talking about what your favorite restaurant is. We're talking about God. We're talking about the most important thing that can be discussed by human beings And man, I think we should sit and we should wrestle with the deep things of God. A.W. Tozer so famously says that what comes to your mind and mine when the word God is mentioned is the most important thing about you. So theology is not just this empty, useless practice for intellectuals. But in the same way, theology is not meant to simply be, be sat on and pontificated about. The reality is that as we theologize, as we talk about who God is, as we talk about what he's accomplished in his son, when we understand God rightly, that is an inexhaustible source of fuel for our going and our doing. Because our going and our doing and our evangelism and our prayer and our missions and our outreach and our Women's Resource Center, it's no longer based on our fleeting emotions of this is how I feel today and I feel like I should help people and I feel guilty. And I watched the Arms of the Angel commercial and I saw the, the donate a dollar a day to feed it and I'm, I'm guilty. It's not fueled by our guilt, it's fueled by the character of God which does not change. Which means it is an unending source of fire for us to go and to do because it is rooted in an unending and an inexhaustible, sovereign, triune God. It's not either or, it's both and. We wrestle with these things about God so that we can act in his world in accordance with his character. So know that when we talk about Jesus as prophet and priest and king, this is not some sort of an empty intellectual exercise. This is the son of God we are talking about. We as Christians believe that this is God we are discussing. And what we believe about him will affect the way that we live. This threefold office, Jesus as the prophet and as the greater priest and as the the great and righteous king. Sometimes called the triple cure. It's called the triple cure because Christians have recognized from scripture that we are diagnosed by the word of God with three problems. And anybody who will be called Messiah, anybody who we will call Lord, anyone who we will call deliverer is going to have to address these three problems at the heart of human nature for us to rightly be delivered. There are three gaping wounds at the core of humanity, and they must be healed or the whole man will not be healed. It's not enough to fix one. It's not enough to fix two. Any good and perfect Messiah, physician, whatever we want to call it, he's got to get to the heart of all three. Because this is what has gone wrong in, in humanity. Francis Turton uh, put it this way. You remember, may remember it from last week. The problem of humanity is threefold. One, it is ignorance. We do not know what God is like. Now, now we may know some things about God. Uh, I mean, really, there's never been a human society in the history of human societies that that generally speaking has not predominantly been dominated by theists because looking at the nature of the cosmos itself seems to point people towards theism. So we may know that God exists from looking at the world. We may know that he's powerful just by the vastness of the cosmos and the power of the forces therein as opposed to our own weakness. But that is a far cry from, far cry from a God that we can interact with. So there, there is an ignorance about God that is fundamental to us. Paul in Galatians tells the church in Galatia that before they knew Christ, they did not know God. And now that they know God, and then Paul puts this parenthetical, rather you are known by God. Now, why would you submit yourself to that ignorance and slavery of sin? So, so the first problem that any savior needs to address, the first wound that needs to be mended by any triple cure is that we don't know who God is or what he's like, not in any real profound way, maybe just a shadow backlit and causing us to squint to see. You might remember my friend, whose name I don't remember, so I'm not a very good friend, I guess. Um, we, We sat at Taco Bus, and we talked about the religion and his opinions on it, and he said, you know, the problem I have with Christians is they talk about God as though they know what he is like, and I just don't understand how you can actually presume to know what God is like And that's actually a really good question. But Jesus provides for us a solution. Just as God uh, pointed to this solution in the Old Testament, because of our ignorance of God, he speaks through the prophets. This is the way that God addresses ignorance in the Old Testament. I'm teaching our foundations class. It's our adult education course here at Baylife, and we just finished the prophet Jeremiah. And it is unbelievable the number of times that the prophets meet with God, they hear a word from the Lord, and they go to the people to tell the people what God is like because the people don't get it. Hear the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord. This is what God expects of you. This is what God is like. And based on what God is like, this is how you need to act in accordance with it. So much of prophecy in the Old Testament is not predictive of the future. It is telling people here and now what God is like and what you need to do about it. The office of the prophet to answer our ignorance that we don't know what God is like, and so he speaks to us through the prophets. But the prophets speak incompletely. completely. And this is why Hebrews 1, the author says, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophet, but in these days, he has spoken to us through his son. A truer, a better, a complete prophet. Jesus is so fully the answer to our ignorance about God That in John chapter 11 or so, the apostles say to him, Lord, would you just show us the Father? And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to see God? If you've seen me, you have seen God. He'll go on later and say, I and the Father are one. Our ignorance is answered by the prophet Jesus, a truer and better prophet who shows us in his perfect glory what God is like. He is our prophet. And he puts one hand over a bleeding wound and begins to mend it. Uh, But here's the interesting thing about medicine, if we can kind of continue with this illustration, is that maybe you've seen this. There's all these commercials that circulate on the telly. Um, We have a British lady in our office. Her name's Sharon, and so I pick up some of her lingo. Sharon. You've seen the commercials, whether it's uh, weight loss pills or antidepressants or... Uh, whether it's uh, things for um, sterility, all all kinds of medical answers to common ailments. Uh, And they give you this wonderful, idyllic picture of what your life could look like on Prozac. And while you watch the idyllic picture, in the fastest talking man they can hire, you hear all of the side effects of what this might actually do to you, which could be worse than what you're trying to fix. It's as though you plug one hole with your thumb and the stream just comes out with all the more fury from the next hole. I've been honest about this. A couple, about a year and a half to two years ago, uh, I, had, I had to go on medication for anxiety, for problems with depression. And, and I remember sitting with the doctor uh, and him or her reading the list of side effects, uh, one of which was death. And in my head I'm going, I can be sad or I can die. <laughs> Great, that's... I, <laughs> How is this better? But, but she explained to me why. So if you've ever wondered why one of the consequences of antidepressants is increased risk of suicide, uh, it's because there are people who are so depressed that they don't have the will to get up and actually commit suicide. And this gives them just enough to end their own lives. Which is tragic in many ways. But the reality is that if all Jesus does is show us what God is like, then we have another problem. And our problem is the problem of Isaiah. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, Isaiah is given a vision of the throne room of heaven. He says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They were called, calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook. The temple was filled with smoke, and Isaiah cries, Woe to me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. Sociologist of religion, Rudolf Otto, calls this the mysterium tremendum, the mystery that repels. That when people have these encounters with God, it's normally not a warm fuzzy. It is a horrifying collapse before the the God that I have encountered in abject terror. And the reason is clear in Isaiah. He, in this vision, sees... Just a glimpse of God. He sees the robes of God, the the throne of God. Doesn't even see the face of God. He sees God and he collapses in horror because he is aware of how unlike God he is, how utterly wicked he is, how utterly sinful he is, how utterly unworthy he is to stand in the presence of God so much so that he says, woe is me, I am undone. And it's not just that he's evil, it's that the people he's around are evil. He's so aware of how holy God is that his own wickedness becomes a crushing weight on him, but not just his wickedness, the wickedness of the people that he surrounds himself with begins to crush him. And the reality is that all, if all that Jesus does is to be a prophet who shows us God, then we will find ourselves just like Isaiah, crushed beneath the weight of how unlike him we are and how wicked we are before him. So Francis Turton. Uh, if we can go back to him, he says the, pro- the problem is threefold. It's our ignorance, but it's also our guilt and our corruption. And when we know what God is like, we realize how wicked we are. Our problem is the problem of people like Leo Tolstoy when he read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Leo read this, um, and if you're not familiar with him, he's this famous famous Russian author he read the Sermon on the Mount he said this is a beautiful uh, piece of ethics this is a wonderful way of describing what, what people should live like this might even be divine this seems like it's come from God and at the end of his life he was crushed by the fact that even in reading the Sermon on the Mount and doing his very best he could never live up to it in the very glimpse of God that he saw in the teachings of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount it crushed him because he knew how unlike God he was so, if all we have is a prophet, then we'll suffocate under the weight of our guilt. Uh, it's not just the Sermon on the Mount. If you're in our catechism class, we walked through, uh, we walked through uh, just the law of God and the Ten Commandments. We don't even need to go through the whole of the law. The Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20, that we should have no other gods before the Lord and that we should not make idols for ourselves. And even if we just examine our own lives... How often have we set ourselves up as gods? How often have we set up our family and our friends and our success, whether it's academically or monetarily? How often have we set our own popularity up as a god and made it a graven image that we bowed down to instead of the Lord of hosts? And we are convicted there. You can walk through it. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Holy cow. We break this every Sabbath day. By not setting it aside for the Lord, you can walk even further to not murdering and committing adultery. And look at what Jesus says that if you're angry with your brother, it's the same as murder. If you look on someone with lust, it's the same thing as adultery. You shall not steal. Am I the only one who took candy from the shopping line as a kid? (laughs) At four years old, I violated the law of God. (laughs) You shall not bear false witness or lie against your neighbor. Oh my gosh, you shall not covet. The whole premise of the Home Shopping Network is covetousness. And on and on and on it goes. The more that we see God for who he is, the more that Jesus reveals to us the character of God, the more crushed we are beneath the weight of the fact that we are sinners. Not just good people turned bad by society, not a tabula rosa that's corrupted by a corrupt society, but hell-bent from birth, we are wicked. It's for this reason that Martin Luther humiliated his family during his first mass. Uh, You may not be familiar with this, so let me give you some background. Martin Luther is kind of an important guy. He's kind of a hinge upon which Western civilization turns. It's the reason that we're not all Catholic, uh, other than the providence of God. So I should, he's maybe a secondary means by which we're not all Catholic. (laughs) But Luther... And his dad, uh, well, Luther's dad wanted him to be a lawyer. It's the original, my dad wants me to be a doctor, but I want to be a poet. Uh, it's, it's the original, um, what's, the sh- what's the Robin Williams movie? Dead Poet Society. It's the original Dead Poet Society. Luther's dad wants him to be a lawyer. He decides that he wants to be a priest dad is disappointed but says, well, maybe you can be a, a pretty well-off priest and, and still bring honor to our family. And so Luther goes through all of the training to become a Roman Catholic priest, and he gets to the point to where he has to perform his first Mass. Now, if you're not familiar with this, Mass is a big deal in the Catholic Church. It's a huge deal. It's an inexpressible deal because in Catholic theology, this bread and this wine that we take together every week is not simply bread and wine. It's Jesus' physical body and blood. You are in the presence physically of Jesus, according to Catholic belief, every time you come to the Mass. And so Luther gets to his first Mass. It's the first time that he'll be publicly administering this sacrament. And proud old dad invites all of his friends from across the countryside to see his boy's first Mass, which is kind of a strange... It's like, I mean, in these days, we we bring our friends to see our kids' baseball game, but I guess Mass was cool in the Middle Ages. (laughs) And so Luther holds up the grape juice... The wine, not the grape juice. Luther holds up the wine and he holds up the bread and he utters the words of institution, hocus corpus meum, this is my body. And he begins to think about the fact that he has broken nearly all of God's commandments. And he begins to think about the fact that even before the mass, he had lusted in his heart. And he begins to think about the fact that that week, he had had hatred towards his brother. And he begins to think about the fact that throughout his life, how many times have I lied? How many times have I stolen? How many times have I coveted? And some accounts say that he begins to shake at the weight of his sins to the point that he begins to to spill the cup and to drop the bread, and he runs off in terror and humiliates dear old dad. (laughs) Because you said you wanted to be a priest and not a lawyer, and you can't even priest good. (laughs) But Luther becomes increasingly aware in that moment of how unworthy he is to stand before God. And it crushes him. It's because of this that the Lord gives Israel, at the same time as the law, a priesthood. Because as they read the law, they will see how much they have sinned against God. And the Lord knows that they will need a way to be made right before him as they become more and more aware of how deeply they have wronged him. So prophets represent God to man. Priests represent men before God. They stand on behalf of men and intercede on behalf of the people. We see this so clearly explained in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 1 through 3 where the author says this, for every high priest is chosen from among men and is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins so, again, if you're tracking with me, prophet reveals God to man. Priest uh, stands on behalf of men before God. And it's not simply that God gives us priests, but he gives the people of Israel what's called a sacrificial system. Now, many of us grew up in church, so we heard about the temple and we heard about sacrifices and, and, and we knew that this is how the people of Israel were forgiven for their sins. If you do this, this is the sacrifice. And if you do this, this is your penance and your sacrifice. And, and this is how they're made right before God. This is how their guilt is absolved. This is, this is how they're able to walk with their heads held high and not to be crushed under the guilt of their transgression but most of us only have a Sunday school understanding of what is documented in the Old Testament and I want for you just for a moment um, to ponder the emotional toll that the actual office of priest would take on whoever was appointed to stand on behalf of men before God I'm not trying to be morbid here but if you've ever seen an animal that was hit by a car and not finished off They do not go quietly into the night. And I want you to recognize that to atone for sin, it was not one animal every once in a while. It was hundreds of thousands of animals for a thousand years. I want you to consider also that this was not a detached felt board image of something that looks like steak cooking on a stack of bricks. Right? These were priests having to physically restrain animals as they heard the screams and they smelled the stench of iron in the blood as it was let from the arteries. This is a horrifying, horrifying act. And it's almost as if year in and year out, decade in and decade out, God says to his people, Behold the utter horror of creation rebelling against the author of goodness itself. Look at the absolute, abject weight of what it will cost to undo this horrible thing that you have done in transgressing the God of all goodness and mercy. Look at the cost of your sin every single time. The Old Testament ends, and it ends with this question I think. It's not explicitly stated, it's implicit. It's a literary convention. It, it's, read between the lines here. Of, of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sacrifices. And it ends with this question, will it ever be good enough? Will there ever be enough to, to atone for the utter horror of sin? Will it ever be enough enough? There'll never be enough lambs. There'll never be enough oxen and sheep. There's never enough blood to make good on this. Is this the cycle that we are destined to live in forever? And it's with that perspective and frame of reference that John the Baptist comes out of the wilderness and he points at his cousin Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that will take away The sins of the world. Prophets represent God to men. And priests stand on behalf of men before God. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus is our great high priest. That he is a greater priest than of a better covenant, that he is the final high priest to answer the problem of our guilt so that sacrifices are no longer a necessity to hold our heads high before God. And so we might ask this question, how is Jesus better than any high priest who came before him? What makes Jesus the greatest high priest? What is it about Jesus and what Jesus does that puts an end to this need for sacrifice that puts an end to this need for high priests. Well, part of the answer is found in Hebrews 7:26 through 27, where we're told that it's indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people since he did this once and for all when he was offered up himself. In the the old office of high priest in the old covenant in the Old Testament, the priest wasn't just atoning for the people in his sacrifices and in his prayers. He had to cover himself too. In fact, there's, there's some indication that when the priest went to make their once a year sacrifice for all of the people, if they went in unrepented, there was the possibility that they would die in the presence of God. And so there was a rope tied around these priests so that if they went into the Holy of Holies and they died, they could get dragged out by the rope. It's wildly morbid and super fascinating to me. And this is, this is what the author of Hebrews is getting at, is that Jesus being perfect is unlike any other priest to go before him because he has no sins to atone for. There is no fear of standing before the presence of God and being struck down dead. He alone is blameless. And this makes him a truer and a better priest. And it's because he is blameless that the next aspect of his priesthood flows out of it. Because he is blameless, he does not need to bring a lamb. He does not need to bring an oxen. He brings himself as the sacrifice. In the account of Abraham in the book of Genesis, God tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac on this mountain and offer him as a burnt offering. Uh, and it's this terrifying instance in the Old Testament. And as Abraham is walking with his son up the mountain, Isaac, who has no doubt seen sacrifices before, asks his father, Where is the sacrifice? And I can only imagine that as Isaac gets further and further up the mountain, he's like, No, but quit playing. Where's the sacrifice? Seriously. What are we doing here? And Abraham gives this answer that I think resounds throughout the pages of Scripture. He says, my son, the Lord will provide his sacrifice. But who could have imagined that the Lord would provide himself as the sacrifice? Not only that he would be the one to offer it, but that it would be him, body, blood, flesh, soul, presented as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. The Lord provided him for himself a sacrifice on that day. Isaac is spared. And in the Passover, 2,000 years ago, God does not simply provide for himself a, a sacrifice. He provides himself as a sacrifice to make good on what the blood of bull bulls and goats could never do and this is why Jesus is a greater high priest because it is a sacrifice once and for all but there's more to why Jesus is so great a high priest to answer the problem of our guilt Hebrews 7 23 through 25 it says this former priests they were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office makes sense people die But He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Listen, understand this. Jesus was not simply a priest during His time on earth. Jesus continues as a priest beyond the boundaries of time and space itself. This is why he is a better priest, because death cannot stop his priesthood. In his priesthood, he overcomes death, and he continues. This is why the ascension matters. This is why it matters that Jesus doesn't just live kind of a normal life and then uh, die and get buried again after the resurrection. This is why it matters that in the creeds we confess that he is raised and he is seated at the right hand of the Father because it's from the right hand of the Father that he continues to be your high priest. Jordan read for you from the book of First John chapter 2, My children, I write these things so that you might not sin, but so that you know that when you do sin, you have an advocate. A faithful high priest in Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you. Even now, consider this. We are talking right now as Jesus intercedes on your behalf for whatever sins you've committed since I started this sermon. He continues to be your priest. He continues to intercede on your behalf before the Father. And if you're not a believer in this room, and I don't know if you are or if you're not or if you've been coming to church for 20 years and have never made this conviction, I just want you to, to, to hear this. Again, this is, why, this is why the reformers rejected praying to the saints. Because the saints are not seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Only Jesus is. And I want you to hear this in verse 25, where it says that consequently, because he ever lives, because he sits at the right hand, he is able to save to the uttermost, to the furthest reaches of our brokenness to the farthest depths of our depravity, uh, to the lowest lows of our wickedness, he is able to save to the uttermost because it's not simply that he was a priest but that he is a priest and he will be a priest. And so maybe you've walked through the law and you've said, yeah, I've I've broken all of these And, and I might actually begin to start, I might even be beginning to think that maybe this puts me in bad standing with God understand uh, that we're not simply talking about what's happened, we're talking about what continues even now. And he continues to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. And this is the reason for those of you who are Christians why we continue to repent in our prayers. Because with Jesus our great high priest the answer to our repentance is always yes. Because he continues to save to the uttermost, as our prophets revealing God to us, and as our priest interceding on our behalf. Let's pray. Lord, what glorious things you have put in your word not simply for our conviction, but for our comfort, Lord. I thank you that you don't simply diagnose our problem, Lord, but you provide for us a remedy, uh, a remedy in the person and the work and the continued work of your Son, our great and our faithful High Priest. And Lord, as we move now to communion, what a great time to mark Christ's continued priesthood because we don't come to this table by our own righteousness, We don't come to this table because we are good. We come to this table because you have made us good by the work of our great high priest, Jesus. Lord, we pray that you meet with us now over bread and over wine. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.